Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Another in our series of uh, podcasts with green energy projects, David, a very uh, useful, I think, and insightful conversation with Paul McLean, the Managing Director for Bearhead Energy, which is uh, a wholly owned subsidiary of a company that nobody will have heard of, Buckeye Resources, um, and their uh, subsidiary, Bayes Infrastructure. But that relationship is very important to the potential success of this project, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, very interesting to see the deep pockets that are behind this. And that certainly gives a, 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 cert, a, a real strong sense that they've got the right level of investors behind this if this project is to go ahead. You know, this is a project that is literally billions of dollars to get to the end point. Um, Paul indicated that it would cost in excess of two billion U.S. dollars to build the terminal alone. <clears throat> there will be the need for 400 wind turbines, both onshore and offshore, um, which will be multiples of the cost of the terminal building. And um, you know, to have a partner with the sort of uh, experience and uh, network of uh, Buckeye is really important. They run 150 terminals worldwide. So, you know, that's a big, that's a big player and, and it's going to take a big player to bring these projects to fruition. And, and by the way, just for people listening, this is all, this is going to be a private sector finance, but it's going to be debt that will build these things. And then the ratio will be 75, 25 or 80, 20, whatever it is. That's how these big projects get built. And there seems to be a lot of money around for this kind of infrastructure building. Um, and so it's not it's not out of sight, but it is a big project and uh, with lots of uh, economic spinoffs, as Paul mentioned. Yeah, I think, I think uh, our listeners will be familiar with these large projects, right? Essentially, if you look at what happened with offshore gas in Nova Scotia, a company comes in and invests billions of dollars building that infrastructure. And then they spend the next 20 or 30 years, uh, you know, generating operating profits to offset those costs. We see it with large pulp mills. This is just a new generation of those big investments. And that's why I asked Paul about the lifetime of a project like this, right? Because it'll take five to 10 years to get it invest all the investment in the ground. But then he said 40 years is the life cycle for, for, for these operations. So that's good quality, high paying jobs in rural Nova Scotia for 40 years, Don. And that's the kind of thing you see with these anchors in the past, like pulp mills and and other big capital projects. So that's what's exciting here. These are not fly by night operations in and out. Once they deploy that capital, uh, unless there's something extraordinary that happens, they will be major employers in small communities in Nova Scotia for 40 years. And it's a really, really exciting, uh, exciting project. One of the things I wanted to mention, this came out in our conversation with Everwind as well, is that <clears throat> the port, uh, the port, at the uh, uh, facilities at the Strait are really uh, a big asset. Um, Paul mentioned something that I hadn't realized that uh, the distance to Europe to send hydrogen and ammonia is only half the distance from the Gulf states. Um, that's a big advantage that I hadn't realized, and of course, it's a deep water port, ice free year round. So. Big asset there that could be uh, a big advantage to those projects on the strait. <clears throat> Nonetheless, these are, I, I, I'm getting a sense that they're really complex uh, projects. Um, Bearhead just received their approval for the environmental portion of it, but they still need approvals for water usage, for, you know, transmission uh, power lines, for, um, uh, wind farms, both onshore and offshore, it just seems endless, the amount of work that is needed to get these things to the finish line. And um, however, the finish line is not that far away, you know, that uh, they're going to make a decision, a goal, uh, no goal by 2025, I believe, and they'll have their phase one in place by 2028. That's only, that's five years. That's not that long. Yeah, absolutely. And another point I wanted to make uh, in our intro here is, and you raised it with him, is uh, the Nova Scotia's need for exports. And I was looking at this data for some another project you and I are working on just last week. So um, Nova Scotia used to generate 
exports at a rate of about 46% of GDP. So that was the amount of exports relative to the size of GDP in the province. And that was in the early 2000s. And now we're down to 33%. And you can see the correlation to the decline in GDP growth in the province. So the reality is Nova Scotia now has the largest trade deficit of any province in the country. You bring in more exports relative to your export, you bring in more imports relative to your exports than any other province in the country. And so I think the government needs to be very focused on growing exports from Nova Scotia because that's money that flows in. You know, the exports go out, the money comes in, that money circulates in the economy and ultimately becomes taxes that pay for health care. So I think this is a huge opportunity if, if Everwind and Bearhead and maybe even other projects go ahead uh, that, that are export intensive, that will replace many of the lost exports the province has seen in forest products and other sectors over the past 15 years. And one of the final points that I want to make that <clears throat> I think is really important is that Paul said, he, you know, he doesn't feel he's working on a project. He feels he's working on building an industry. And, you know, there are four, there are at least four major uh, hydrogen projects in play right now in Atlantic Canada. Um, you know, we could be a leader, imagine a leader in this field in the country if we can get these things off the ground and demonstrate their success. And I just want to make one final point. You know, the Ivany Commission of almost 10 years ago, one of their big recommendations is that we need to be more export focused. You, you've laid out the data, you know, uh, for us to be successful long term, we need to find more things to sell to others somewhere else. And so, um, you have two hydrogen projects uh, possible here. That would make a major contribution uh, to that uh, to that uh, export sector. So, with that introduction, here's our conversation with Paul McLean, managing director for Bearhead Energy. We are joined on this episode of the Insights Podcast by Paul McLean, the managing director of Bearhead Energy. Paul, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Don. So let's begin by finding a little bit about your background and your career path, how you got started in your career, where you, uh, uh, your career developed, and how you ultimately ended up in your current role with uh, Bearhead Energy. And I was actually on the founders team of a company called Access Northeast Energy back in the early 2000s when we established Bearhead as an, an LNG import project. And uh, we... Uh, uh, we obtained all of the permits for the LNG import project, and we sold it to uh, Anadarko Petroleum in 2004. Um, unfortunately, Anadarko was unable to secure the LNG at, uh, on the terms that they, they needed, um, and um, they put the project into high idle in 2007 um, after investing about $130 million in, um, in civil construction uh, the pouring of two LNG tank foundations, roads, drainage, and so on. Um, we um, sold the project in 2015 to a company called LNG Limited, and we we pivoted at that time from LNG import to LNG export. Um, but we were very much challenged by the uh, difficulty in, in bringing large volumes of natural gas to Nova Scotia. Um, it... Uh, required the construction of new pipeline facilities in the U.S. Northeast and or um, in uh, Eastern Canada. And unfortunately, um, those pipeline expansion projects didn't uh, take place. Um, LNG Limited um, uh, suspended uh, their operations in 2019. And, and uh, my partner and I were fortunate enough to uh, buy the project back in uh, April of 2021. And we immediately made the decision to move away from uh, fossil fuels and, and to uh, shift to uh, green hydrogen and, and green ammonia. Uh, so it's, it's been a, sort of a 20 year um, commitment to the energy space here in Nova Scotia, but really excited to be working in the, in the green hydrogen and green ammonia space. Paul, you were saying earlier, you were, I think, born and raised in Nova Scotia? I was actually born and raised in uh, Port Hotsbury, um, about uh, five kilometers away from the uh, project uh, site. Um, and uh, I, I have a summer home there, so I try and spend as much time in, uh, in uh, Cape Breton as I, as I can. So it's a 20-year journey to try and do something big for your 
the place of your birth. Yeah, that, that's a really great point, uh, David. It, you know, it's it's great to make a living in the energy space, but uh, I think there's a bit of um, sort of economic development in in uh, in my genetics, and that uh, I think creating opportunities to bring uh, Nova Scotians home from Western Canada or, or other parts of uh, Canada to uh, have uh, uh, great, you know, great paying jobs in the Strait region is a very important aspect of the project. We're really interested in understanding, uh, you know, you gave a pretty good history of the, uh, the development uh, of the project uh, in Port Hawkesbury from initially uh, LNG importer to an exporter and now uh, to a green hydrogen producer. And you've been in and out of that for 20 years. So you've got the history <laughs> and I guess all the bruises that go with that history. But uh, tell, tell us a little bit about the reasoning behind the change in focus for the company, because that's a, you know, it's a big it's a big deal, right? It, it was and it was a, a huge decision on on our part in that um, both John, John Godbold, my, my business partner at the time, and I were were really LNG guys. Uh, John was involved in. A number of uh, LNG projects globally, um, so it was a huge decision for us to to make that uh, change. And at the time, uh, we thought we were establishing a project. Little did we realize that we we're actually establishing an industry in Nova Scotia. Um, and you know, in April 2021, we were really sort of the first movers in the province. And uh, now there's a green hydrogen and, and green ammonia uh, boom in Atlantic Canada. Um, that uh, we really didn't see uh, coming at the time. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think it's also indicative of the, the global change from, uh, uh, from fossil fuels in order to, to decarbonize um, industry to uh, fight climate change. And, and I think that really underpinned this, the decision for us to, to move away from, from uh, LNG to uh, green hydrogen and green ammonia. Now, David and I are very interested in this topic, and you, you hit the nail on the head. You went from doing a project to helping build a, an industry in our region. There are at least four different projects going on right now. We, we had a podcast with, uh, with Everwind uh, not that long ago, also in the same geography that you are. <clears throat> we also had a podcast with the Port of Baldoon, who are talking about doing a hydrogen hub. Um, and uh, and there's a big project, obviously, uh, in Newfoundland that David's been personally involved in. So there's four fairly significant projects. There is a, a sense that Atlantic Canada could be a leader in, in, in hydrogen energy. I, I just like your comments on that, because this is a big opportunity for Atlantic Canada, maybe to be, if not first, near first in terms of the production of hydrogen. Is that really possible for our region? I think it absolutely is, and and I think too it's it's interesting that uh, there's really a strong sense of cooperation among the hydrogen uh, players. I, I think that uh, for the uh, proponents or the developers of uh, all of these projects, that um, you know we we communicate on a regular basis, and and I think there's a sense that we are trying to build an industry in Atlantic Canada, and uh, I think the market potential for all projects is so immense that. Uh, we're not really competing that much against one another. Uh, as one of the uh, uh, German utilities said that uh, there's a tsunami of demand that, that's heading our way. Um, so I, I think that um, the uh, projects that are on the table right now have um, a high uh, degree of uh, probability of success. Um, and uh, I think that uh, Atlantic Canada has a, a great opportunity uh, to uh, really establish itself as a as a a, a global hydrogen hub, um, and it's uh, going to be a great economic driver uh, for all of Atlantic Canada. Uh, so very exciting times in the the hydrogen space. Um, you know, we were largely focused on export at this point, but uh, I, I think really the next and obvious uh, phase is the development of a hydrogen economy in Atlantic Canada. Uh, so that we can we can produce and sell more of the product at, here at home. And again, uh, just to put it in perspective, and, and this is a little off our, our our intended questions, but I think it's an important question. You know, this is this could all happen in a relatively short period of time, right? It could. It's not. We're not looking at twenty five years in the future. This is within the next decade or so, right? Uh, 
Absolutely. I mean, we, we tend to be, I, I think, fairly conservative in our, um, in our project scheduling and milestones. Um, mm-hmm. the team, the team is very, my team has been very much involved in, in the development of large scale energy projects uh, globally. Um, but this is, uh, in terms of project development, uh, the timelines are, are still very short. Um, and it's a, an opportunity that, uh, is really in the windshield for Atlantic Canada. Um, we are, uh, sort of internally executing on a very well-defined project development plan. Um, we plan to uh, to move to final investment decision on the project in 2025. Um, our goal is to be in commercial operation in 2028. Um, but really, in 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 project development terms, that's a, that's a very short uh, timeline. Um, but uh, exciting times in the um, in the hydrogen space, as I was saying earlier, um, and uh, I think the market potential. Um, is is just masses, um, and it, and I think it uh, helps to that demand side helps to elevate the probability of success for all of these projects. Uh, Bear uh, Head Energy was recently sold. I, I, I'm interested to know the reason for selling it. You 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 seem to get projects going to a certain level, and then you sell. I guess make a bunch of money, and then get ready to do something else. But uh, uh, Bearhead is now a wholly owned subsidiary of a company called Bayes Infrastructure, I believe. Tell us a little bit about Bayes Infrastructure and why that ownership is important to what's going on in Nova Scotia. Well, personally, I think the fact that I didn't have to to finance the development of the project with my American uh, Express card any longer was was an important uh, milestone for me. (laughs) (laughs) But... Really, after we acquired the company in in twenty one, uh, John and I really uh, took some time to to uh, clean up the the company and and to um, do quite a bit of planning in that initial stage. But it became very obvious to us if we were to develop the project at the scale that we needed to get to that uh, we needed significant uh, capital brought to the table. Um, so we had a lot of uh, a lot of meetings with uh, private equity firms and with uh, incumbent oil and gas players, and and uh, we were fortunate enough to um, meet with Buckeye Partners. And um, Buckeye is uh, is an amazing company. They they own and operate about 150 terminals um, in the liquids terminals in the United States and the Caribbean. They operate 5,500 miles of uh, pipelines as well. Um, they were actually uh, the descendant company of uh, Standard Oil, the company founded by the Rockefellers 150 years ago. Um, but uh, very, uh, very well established uh, company. They have uh, Buckeye Partners has spun out um, a company called uh, Buckeye Alternative Energy Strategies uh, Infrastructure, and. Bearhead has been rolled under that um, rolled under that uh, development company, as has uh, um, Swift Current Energy, which is a, a solar and wind uh, company in the United States. One H two, which is a a uh, sort of a, a retail hydrogen uh, company, um, and uh, we all, we're also developing another um, uh, hydrogen and ammonia project in South Texas. So the uh, really the, the rationale for bringing Buckeye in initially was to um, provide the development capital to push the project uh, forward. But as we, we worked with Buckeye and negotiated with Buckeye, it just became obvious to John and I that uh, with the tremendous strategic value that they brought to the table and the expertise in operating the, the terminals that it just made sense for us to sell the company. Uh, John and I uh, made a commitment that we would continue on to make sure that the project uh, was uh, developed on schedule, and and we intend to deliver on that uh, that uh, commitment. Um, but uh, Buckeye has been a, a great sponsor and a great partner for for Bearhead. Uh, we wanted to go a little bit deeper into the advantages of the proposed site and your company. Uh, in the Strait of Canso, can you give us a sense of what the advantages are to doing a project like this uh, in the Strait of Canso? And you can also, if you'd like, elaborate on why Bearhead is, uh, you know, an ideal uh, f- a company to take this on. 
that geographically the uh, uh, the project site is is phenomenal. It's in, Bearhead sits in, in the Point Tupper Industrial Park, um, which is very well established as a as a manufacturing and, and um, energy and petrochemical um, uh, park. Um, the Strait of Canso itself, our side of the harbor is uh, ice free 100% of the year. Um, the uh, deepest part of that harbor, I think, is 65 meters, and um, it's a um, uh, it's 1.5 kilometers from the Bearhead site to uh, across the harbor to mainland Nova Scotia. Um, so, from a marine perspective, it's just a, a phenomenal uh, harbor to uh, to uh, operate on. Um, there's really low marine traffic at this point. Um, there's a lot of tonnage because one of the biggest shippers there is Martin Marietta, and, and they're shipping uh, aggregate uh, globally. Um, and we're we're very fortunate too that. Uh, Back in the 70s, the um, uh, province established the Landry Lake uh, Reservoir, uh, which was established to provide water to the uh, uh, to the heavy in industries in that park. Uh, as an example, um, the uh, heavy water plant that operated there in the 70s used about 14 million gallons of water per day. Uh, Bearhead's requirement at this point is about four or five million gallons per day. Um, so there's a very robust um, industrial reservoir there that uh, uh, it's nice to have my feedstock in my my backyard as opposed to trying to trying to to negotiate have natural gas brought all the way from Western Canada to the Bearhead site. Um, and then the I don't I don't think it's a secret any longer that uh, Nova Scotia has a tremendous onshore uh, wind regime uh, and an even better offshore wind regime. Um, so you take all of those components uh, just from a uh, from the geography or the physical attributes of the the area um, it's uh, it's just an ideal location for us there's also the shipping distance you know we're often compared to the US Gulf Coast um, bearhead I think is 2900 nautical miles from uh, from uh, uh, bearhead to key ports in uh, Europe, whereas the U.S. Gulf Coast is about 6,900 nautical miles. So really half the shipping distance from the U.S. Gulf Coast. Uh, so shipping is very important. But I think the, the biggest part of doing business in the Strait of Canso region is the uh, open for business attitude uh, in the Strait. Um, that... Uh, you know, the, the most frequent question is, you know, when are you going to start construction? Uh, where can my son or daughter send their resume? Um, how do I how do I get my products or services in front of you? And so they're, they're very welcoming of this type of industry, uh, given the long history and track record of some of the great uh, industrial players like Port Hawkesbury Paper and and others in that uh, in that area. Yeah, there's no doubt the area could use another anchor like this. Um, we wanted to, I was struck earlier by your comments around how much money gets invested in these projects, uh, even before the go, no go. There seems to be quite a bit of sort of risk capital up front for these projects. So can you give us a sense of uh, how much you've invested in this initiative, the companies invested in this initiative so far, or how much you expect to invest before the go, no go decision? Um. We're uh, Buckeye is a private uh, private company, um, but we have um, um, mainly through the Anadarko uh, phase. I think it's publicly posted that Anadarko uh, invested about 130 million U.S. dollars in the in the project site um, post acquisition by Buckeye. Um, I would only say that um, they've invested tens of millions of dollars in the development of uh, Bearhead, and we expect that um, that will continue through to uh, FID. You know, there's some some key and critical milestones that uh, we've we've hit in the, the last uh, number of months. Um, first and probably most notable is that uh, we've received our uh, our environmental assessment approval from Nova Scotia Environment and Climate Change. But in parallel to that, we've also received our authorizations from the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Uh, we've also received our, our authorizations from uh, 
the Nova Scotia Federal Department of Environment, or IAC. Um, so Bearhead, the terminal is actually shovel ready. Um, we've also completed uh, project concept definition, um, which would really define the phasing of the project from an engineering perspective over the next, uh, the next uh, five to 10 years. Um, and we're just about to enter uh, pre front end engineering and design, which will carry us from next week through the calendar year. Um, and then uh, in uh, Q1 2024, we'll, we'll kick off uh, front end engineering and design, um, which um, is a, a very key milestone for us because that's where the big spend comes in in terms of the engineering side of the, the equation. We recently had the uh, Minister of Labour for Canada, uh, Seamus O'Regan, on the podcast, and he was the Minister of uh, Natural Resources when they developed the uh, their hydrogen strategy, as you know. It seems to me that the federal government is almost all in on hydrogen. It's, uh, it's kind of unusual, frankly, to have uh, the government le almost lead on this initiative. That, that's been helpful, I'm sure. You have proposed a, a three-phase approach to this initiative. Can you just outline those phases? And again, we're really interested in the kind of the timetable to give people a really good understanding of uh, what to expect. I think, I think it would be really two, two uh, critical phases in terms of if we look at it from installed electrolyzer capacity. Um, yeah. The first phase... Um, and and uh, I think it's interesting that uh, for project concept definition, we actually ran two um, project concept definition um, pieces or reports at the same time, almost on a double blind basis, where um, two engineering firms uh, were hired to do the, the project concept definitions. And both uh, the results of both uh, agreed that um, our initial phase for installed electro electrolyzer capacity should be 800 megawatts, which actually was slightly higher than what uh, our desktop analysis in indicated. Um, in parallel to that, for that phase one, will require about a, a gigawatt or 1,000 megawatts of uh, renewable energy, whether it's from wind, hydro, or, or tidal. Uh, for, the, for the phase two, um, it would be an additional um, 1.2 uh, gigawatts of installed electrolyzer capacity. Um, and that we think will be largely uh, fueled by um, offshore wind development in the province. And we were very encouraged by Tim Houston's announcement that uh, the, the province was going to work, <coughs> excuse me, work toward a call for bids for offshore wind in 2025 with a goal of having five gigawatts of installed um, um, capacity in, in the 2030 timeframe. And that really flanges up well with um, the uh, development schedule for Bearhead. Actually, you know, that, that announcement by the Houston government was very encouraging as well. So, you know, we have both the provincial and, and federal governments getting behind uh, hydrogen. Uh, offshore, we have not had offshore wind um, uh, in Nova Scotia, or I don't think anywhere else in Canada at this moment. It's it. There are big projects in Europe, uh, offshore wind. Um, and we have a lot of wind here, as we all know. <laughs> so that's uh, that's really uh, a big opportunity. And and the fact that now we're establishing goals for wind, I think, is is helpful to projects like yours for sure, especially when you have. You know, two projects are likely to be operating in the same geography, um, you know, seeking, you know, uh, green energy. It's going to be important to have everybody um, on the same timetable, clearly. They, you mentioned earlier that you'd receive uh, the environmental approval for from the province of Nova Scotia. That's that's obviously a big deal. Uh, they've, uh, I think, you they allowed you to uh, to build up to two gigawatts of electrolysis uh, capacity, uh, and you've already mentioned it's going to be two phased. Um, um, so, what does that provide in terms of capacity for hydrogen and uh, ammonia production once it's fully operational? What what does that really mean? At full build out. Um, the facility would produce about 350,000 tons of hydrogen. 
um, per year. And initially we expect all of that hydrogen or the, the, the majority of that hydrogen to be converted to ammonia. And um, with the 350,000 tons of hydrogen, we could produce 2 million tons of uh, ammonia per year. Uh, peak power uh, at full build out could also be as high as, as three gigawatts. Um, so it's uh, really a pretty significant project. I mean, ammonia is not, uh, ammonia production is not new. Uh, hydrogen production is not new by any means. Um, I think what's novel with with our project and others is is just the scale that we're proposing. Um, you know, when I, when I initially made the decision to move away from, from fossil fuels and to, to refocus on green hydrogen, I thought I was building a massive project at uh, 50 megawatts of installed electrolyzer capacity. And, and now I don't think... Right. I don't think an electrolyzer manufacturer would even take your phone call if you were sent, if you were going to, to build a 50 megawatt uh, facility. Um, so it's amazing, really, how much things have changed uh, just in the, the short time frame uh, from April of 21 to to the present, where um, not only in Atlanta, Canada, but globally, um, we're at the forefront of a, an amazing uh, industry and, and a huge potential uh, to decarbonize uh, hard-to-abate industries worldwide. And uh, just to clarify, so the time frame you mentioned earlier is that you hope by 2028 to be uh, operational, um, yes. I, I guess with phase one. Uh, when does it come into full production based on you know reasonable expectations? I, I would suggest that once we do start construction in 2025, that we'll be in continuous construction for a 10-year period. Um, we, uh, with that uh, commercial operation date of 2028, as new uh, renew renewable resources uh, may become available onshore, I think we would continue to build out uh, on that 800 megawatts. Uh, but then certainly as, uh, as the offshore wind turbines are deployed, uh, that will further push the um, the development of the project, and I think your your question is an important one because um, really the phasing of the project is driven by the availability of uh, green electrons. Um, we uh, only plan to use um, grid power uh, just for the ammonia component of of the project. Um, with the electrolyzers, they can follow the follow the wind uh, as the wind is blowing. Uh, you can operate your electrolyzers at uh, full capacity as the wind dies down, then you you can ratchet down your, your electrolyzer production. With ammonia plants, um, they have to operate in a much more consistent and steady state. So in that case, you need um, some grid power. You also need some form of battery storage uh, to support the ongoing operation of the ammonia side of the plant. Uh I know, Paul, it's early days, but can you give our listeners a sense of the scale in terms of the amount of total cost required to get up to full production capacity? Is it, are we talking hundreds of millions? What, what's the, just a general ballpark of what this is going to cost uh, in terms of investment? At full, full uh, build out, you'd be looking at $2 billion for the, um, $2 billion US dollars for the terminal itself. Um, I don't have concrete figures for you for the uh, wind at this point, but uh, I, I think the wind uh, capital expenditures will be a multiple of the um, of the expenditures for the, the Bearhead terminal itself. So while I'm I'm very sort of terminal focused on the development of the project, um, I think the and it's great going to be a great opportunity for Nova Scotia. But uh, I think the wind production and the renewable energy production is is a massive opportunity for for Nova Scotia. Just as a quick follow-up there, uh, Paul, do you have any sense? What's the timeline for this type of project? Is it does it twenty years, thirty years, forty years? What's the sort of what are we looking at in terms of the 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 time the lifetime of a project like this? The the project life would be um, forty a forty year time frame. Um, so I'll, I'll not likely be around for the decommissioning uh, phase of the project. <laughs> one never knows. Um, in terms of the contracting, um, I think that uh, the contracts will be very similar to LNG offtake agreements uh, that would be a 20-year 
20-year uh, types of uh, types of contracts. And really, I think you'll see that the maturity in terms of the definition of those contracts will will also favor Bearhead, and that uh, we'll we'll see more clarity on the pricing of the of the commodity and the definition of contracts as we reach the end of the decade. So a stable source of good paying jobs for four decades, roughly, essentially. Great, um, great paying jobs. Um, we're, um, and, and I talk to the Cape Breton Building and Construction Trades Council on a very regular basis um, because they're, they're very important partners for the, for this project. And, and uh, obviously having the labor force there, having labor stability um, is very important for us, not only during the, the construction phase, but also during the operations phase. And um, we're working with the building trades as we speak on amending the project labor agreement that we signed with them in 2019. Uh, but one of the key things that we, we talk about with the building trades is, is just making sure that uh, when we do want to start construction, that we, we want confidence that the bodies that we need are going to be available. Uh, so there's that aspect. The the other piece of it, from an employment perspective, is that we also want to make sure that uh, all Nova Scotians, um, and in my view, Cape Breton, Cape Bretoners in particular, um, have the skills uh, and the training that uh, are required uh, for the construction as well as for the operation side of the project. So we work with the building trades and we work with uh, uh, the Mi'kmaq communities uh, in the province to try and plan to make sure that uh, those skill sets are uh, in place for the time that we want to start construction. So during the construction phase, we think we'll peak out at 700 construction jobs. Um, but on average, we'll have uh, 600 uh, construction jobs for that phase one. It'll be a 36 month schedule. Um, once we go into operation, we expect that uh, the workforce will be about 70 to 75 uh, permanent jobs. Um, and that's just for the terminal itself. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the other opportunities employment wise would be in the construction and, and uh, operation and maintenance of the wind farms, uh, both onshore and offshore. And um, so this will be hugely impactful for the uh, Strait area and, and for Nova Scotia generally. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and, and you know, obviously you're, you're going to depend on wind as the green energy source for uh, producing hydrogen. Who, who, who do you expect will actually run and own the wind fields, Paul? Is that, is that you guys? We expect that uh, the, these projects are, well, as, as you can imagine, um, are very complex. Um, they are... Uh, um, you know, with your your terminal operations, you've got to have uh, robust power transmission systems. You have to have uh, robust uh, water transmission systems. Um, then you also have to have a, a significant uh, uh, storage strategy to offset the variability of the of the wind. Um, we will likely own because of that that uh, complexity um, and the requirements for project finance at uh, at some point. Um, we expect that Bearhead uh, will own the wind production as well as the, the ammonia and the hydrogen production. But we expect that we will partner with, uh, with others in terms of bringing the expertise to the table in order for the development of those renewable assets. We're, we're happy to do the front end work, but uh, um, we uh, will likely bring in a partner that uh, will, will be involved in the, in the operation and and back-end development of those those projects. I'd be curious to know how, how many wind turbines will be needed for your project to produce two gigawatts of power. I think for the um, uh, for the onshore about two hundred uh, turbines, and I would expect for offshore wind that would be a, would be an additional two hundred uh, wind turbines. Wow. So that that would be in total four hundred. That's correct. Wow, that's that's an amazing number. Um, 
And I guess that uh, with um, with another project in the straight straight area, that that would probably double that need. Would it? Is, is that a correct assumption? I I don't believe so, Don, because I, I think that um, I believe that the Everwind project's phase one is much smaller than ours. I think that uh, while ours is about eight hundred megawatts of installed electrolyzer capacity, I believe Everwind's phase one is uh, three hundred megawatts of installed electrolyzer okay. capacity. So their requirement uh, um, their requirement would be smaller than ours, but uh, nonetheless, you know they. they the opportunity on the wind side for the installation of those those wind turbines for both projects shouldn't be underestimated. I think there's huge potential there. Paul, back in 2022, Inverness County uh, put a moratorium on wind turbine um, development. I don't know if they've lifted that. I, I haven't followed that closely, but I want we wanted to ask you. Where do you think all of these wind turbines will be located, and uh, and uh, will you be able to get community support? Well, we, um, I'm not sure if the, the Inverness uh, moratorium uh, is is still on, but uh, I, I think that um, there were siting issues really that drove that decision by, by the um, uh, Inverness County Council. Um, we don't plan to install any wind turbines in Cape Breton at this point. Um, all of the wind turb turbines that we're planning to install are in, in mainland Nova Scotia. Um, it, we did participate in a, uh, a crown lands process with the province um, and uh, Everwind and Bearhead were both successful in, in securing crown lands for what we think is about 50% of what our, our onshore wind requirement will be. And we're also in the process of uh, locking down private lands for the additional uh, five to 600 megawatts of, um, of uh, wind uh, capacity that uh, that we need. Um, so, I mean, while wind is very much the focus, uh, we also have um, had discussions with uh, tidal companies, and we're we're hopeful that in the long term that uh, that's a um, an opportunity that uh, crystallizes for Nova Scotia because the, the potential for tidal energy is just so significant that, uh, and it would be a, a great um, supporting piece for a hydrogen project because it's um, uh, you know tidal is so predictable that it's as, as close to baseload power as you can as you can get. Um, so it doesn't have uh, as much variability as you would would with a wind resource. And and uh, we're watching that uh, that part of the market quite closely. And we we have our fingers crossed that uh, at some point that becomes a, a reality and and that we can uh, benefit from it. Yeah, there was a setback recently with the project in the Bay of Fundy, right? Because of the some of the concerns around the federal government. I guess I didn't I didn't follow that that closely. Um, okay, I guess I'll turn it back to Don. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to just ask you a follow up question. Uh, as you know, the Port of Baldoon is looking at uh, SMRs, small modular reactors, to produce hydrogen. Is that a consideration for your project? Is that because of, you know this is fairly new, obviously? The timetable seems uh, to fit at least part of your project. Uh, they're, they're working on a pilot project now um, in New Brunswick with the um, New Brunswick Power and Arc Canada. There's something in the news uh, just recently about uh, them reaching some milestone uh, there. Um, they expect to have uh, their SMR operational um by 2030, I think, David, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, it's coinciding a little bit with uh, your project. Is that a consideration at all? Um, not at this point. We're watching it with great interest because, again, um, low carbon, um, low carbon baseload power uh, is a, a great sort of attribute to bring to the table for green hydrogen uh, projects. Um, I think in the Port of Beldoon, on the the color spectrum for hydrogen projects, the uh, they would be producing pink hydrogen, as all of the uh, hydrogen would be produced using nuclear energy. Um, the I, I think red two is not uh, is not uh, quite clear on uh, uh, for the European Union with respect to uh, pink hydrogen, but again, 
Uh, I think uh, it's uh, uh, as a, a, a low carbon option for producing electricity, it has uh, tremendous potential and, and uh, um, it would be great to see something happening in Nova Scotia as far as SMRs are concerned, but um, Bearhead is not uh, pursuing that actively at this, at this time. You, you previously mentioned that, uh, you know, the terminal is going to cost uh, at least $2 billion U.S. That's a big number. And then uh, the wind farms, multiple of that number. So we're talking about billions of dollars. Um, is this all going to be privately funded or, or, or are there going to be other, other sources of uh, funding for? That's a big number. Yeah. There are big numbers, and big big numbers, especially for for a kid from Philpot Street in Port Hawkesbury. Um, <laughs> but uh, the um, the we've got a great team on the project finance side with uh, Buckeye Partners and and with uh, Buckeye Alternative Energy Strategies. Um, we expect that it will be a, a, a sort of traditional uh, project finance uh, model with uh, sort of. An, 80, 80, 20 or 75, uh, 25 uh, debt to equity type of uh, structure. But uh, I think my, my CFO would be in a better spot to comment on that. Um, <laughs> we're, um, it, it's, it's something that um, we're quite confident in. Um, we, uh, Buckeye, um, just as a point of interest, is, is actually owned by um, IFM Infrastructure Partners, which is a um, it's a uh, uh, an infrastructure fund that's comprised of uh, 28 different Australian superannuation pension funds, much like the Canadian Pension Program. Um, they manage about 180 billion dollars in assets, um, so they're very well very well capitalized. I often joke that um, since uh, since most of those pension funds um, in the IFM infrastructure fund are, are uh, uh, sponsored by labor um, in Australia that uh, um, really labor are my shareholders for Bearhead now. And I've got to be very nice to the Cape Breton Building and Construction Trades Council as they're, they're my, now my shareholders. Uh, but uh, the um, IFM folks are, are uh, very supportive of the Bearhead uh, project as well. Um, so we're we're pretty confident in putting the pieces in place for the project finance. It is um, over the next say two years, uh, we'll be putting the building blocks in place uh, for the project. You know, finalizing the permitting was very important. Uh, getting the permits in place for the wind farms, getting it, getting the permits in place for uh, the storage uh, opportunities. Um, all of those key project uh, milestones so that uh, we can put ourselves in a position that we can move forward with that final investment decision in 2025. But one of the elements that we'll also be working on over the next uh, couple of years is that project finance component and structuring um, the wind, the uh, the terminal, and, and all of the project pieces. Um, but we very much look at it as an integrated uh, project. Um, so from a project finance perspective, it will ver look very much like a, a single project. I don't think most Canadians understand that capital flow business. The, we know that Canadian pensioners through the Canada Pension Plan own a big port in Australia. And now you're telling us that uh, Australian pensioners are going to own <laughs> wind energy infrastructure in Canada. So that's kind of neat how that sort of flows around the world. Um, we wanted to ask you about your markets for hydrogen and, and ammonia. The, there was a great article in The Economist about the uh, uh, growing markets, the industrial markets, the trans industrial transportation markets, a a aviation um, uh, as a substitute for natural gas in the, in the agriculture sector. It just seemed to me there was just a ton of opportunity for hydrogen. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the likely markets for your hydrogen and ammonia? Sure. From a geographic perspective, um, we we've always been very Europe centric, um, and and really Don mentioned it earlier. But uh, um, we two two documents that were were sort of foundational in terms of our decision to move away from fossil fuels and to uh, uh, shift to uh, 
green hydrogen, green ammonia was the Canadian federal hydrogen strategy, um, which was released around the time of my acquisition or our, our acquisition of uh, Bearhead. The other piece was the framework agreement between Germany and Canada on the development of uh, clean energy, uh, which would have been, again, March of 2021. Um, and then, of course, that was followed up uh, by the accord that was signed by the German Chancellor and Prime Minister Trudeau in Stephenville um, last year. Um, and then there have also been, uh, been uh, uh, subsequent meetings in, uh, in Berlin on uh, uh, putting the the uh, tangible pieces of the accord and that uh, framework agreement in place to move forward with contracts for supply and, and the demand side. So Germany in particular has been important to uh, Bearhead um, and it's really driven our, our renewable energy uh, strategy and that we wanted to develop it to comply with uh, RED2 and RED3, which are the European Union standards for uh, green hydrogen. As of late, though, and since, uh, especially since our um, um, approval for um, all the permitting for Bearhead, um, I was surprised um, to um, to get a lot of demand from Asia. Um, so we've been spending quite a bit of time uh, talking to potential partners or, or uh, off takers in in Asia, both in Korea and Japan. Um, but uh, while we still continue to focus on Europe. Uh, we were also casting the net a little more broadly and, and uh, talking to uh, uh, potentially Asian counterparties. And, and of course, there's also some potential for um, the U.S. Northeast for the product. product. Um, if, if I look at market segments versus geographies, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, ammonia and hydrogen are, are extremely versatile uh, products that are used in a multitude of uh, industries from uh, you know, burning ammonia in the energy or the energy utility space, um, using ammonia for fertilizer uh, uh, companies, um, in in the man manufacture of uh, fertilizers. Um, the uh, there's huge demand for uh, green steel. Um, you know, uh, steel that's produced or manufactured using low carbon sources such as uh, green ammonia or green hydrogen. Um, so I think that's why the market potential is just so huge. It's, it's because it's multi-jurisdictional, it's multi-sectoral, it's, uh, um, it's created a, a great opportunity for, for us at Bearhead. You, do you have any clients uh, signed up at the moment? No, we, we don't, but... Um, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle that we're very confident in, uh, Don, where um, Buckeye operates the 150-odd terminals in the United States. They've got a, a tremendous book of uh, clients in place already, um, and uh, we, in, we intend to capitalize on that. Um, we really did want to put all of these block, building blocks in place to de-risk the project as much as we could before we started to have meaningful conversations with, with potential off-takers. Um, I, with um, my my team or and members of my team, attended the World uh, Hydrogen Conference in Rotterdam uh, a couple of months ago, and and really that was um, the first uh, I think the first opportunity post EA approval for us to present the project to uh, potential off takers, and and I should point out that uh, uh, you know we we like. Two of our favorite pastimes in Atlanta, Canada is one watching hockey and the second is complaining about government. Um, <laughs> it, in our case, uh, we've had a tremendous experience working with the federal government. Um, you had mentioned earlier uh, Minister Wilkinson and Seamus O'Regan, who've both been uh, great supporters of the uh, hydrogen sector in Canada. Um, but there's also Invest Canada, that's been a, a, a very key partner for Bearhead in terms of bringing uh, potential customers to the table or potential investors. Um, and then if you look at the provincial level, working with Invest Nova Scotia or Nova Scotia Business Inc., as it was called at one time, has been very important for us as well. So uh, we value those partnerships with uh, the federal government and provincial government and the agencies that, uh, that uh, support um, economic development, both federally and provincially. You know, it's interesting, the Ivany report 
recommended that we do a lot more export. You're going to be an exporter and, and a significant one. We just had uh, Andrew Mutch on recently from Michelin, uh, president of North American uh, North America for Michelin. And they, uh, they send a $1.2 billion worth of tires to somewhere else in the world, creating great jobs here. Do you have any idea what your portion of exports would be for hydrogen once you get to, you know, capacity, just in terms, just as a, you know, an example against a company like Michelin? In terms of a dollar? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I don't have that, um, that uh, statistic for you. Um, but uh, while we're we're focused on on export today. Um, mm -hmm. We think that ninety or ninety or ninety five percent of the hydrogen will be converted to anhydrous ammonia and put on ships to send to global markets. Um, the remainder will, will we hope will be used as hydrogen here at home. Long term, right. I'd, I'd actually like that um, that equation to flip somewhat to the point where we're producing and using much more hydrogen here in Atlantic Canada. Um, I'd love right. to have Michelin. Love to have Michelin as a customer if I can pipe my hydrogen. To them. <laughs> uh, put we, in we, can, we can hook you, we, we can hook you guys up maybe. <laughs> and I, uh, and I think that will happen over time as uh, as uh, industries continue to focus on uh, reducing their carbon footprint and and their customers are demanding uh, low yep. carbon intensity type products. I think that we will see uh, a much more robust uh, hydrogen economy here at home. Uh, you are currently working with First Nations on this project, uh, maybe on this project. Can you tell us about uh, that working relationship and the role that First Nations will play in the development of this green hydrogen project? The, the We've always worked very closely with the Mi'kmaq communities in, in Nova Scotia, uh, even going back to the Anadarko days. Um, it was always a, a key component of our, our project, and we consider them very important partners. We signed a um, signed a, a, a mutual benefits agreement, um, or or negotiated a mutual benefits agreement um, in 2019 that was ratified by the Nova Scotia's Assembly of Mi'kmaq Chiefs. Um, and um, over the last two years, we've we've been working to modify that uh, benefits agreement. Um, to reflect our shift from LNG to green hydrogen and green ammonia. Um, and we've uh, finalized uh, a revised MOU in order for us to push forward with uh, negotiating that revised agreement. That agreement is, is really focused on uh, jobs, uh, training and capacity building in the, in the communities, as well as um, any joint venture business opportunities that may arise from the development of the terminal. That, that's for the terminal it, itself. Um, for the renewable um, component of, of the project, uh, we expect that um, that First Nations communities will be partners with Bearhead in the uh, in the development of those those uh, projects, um, and uh, we expect that we'll have um, we'll have separate uh, benefits agreements that uh, would would uh, reflect um, those projects, um, and uh, we would expect the, the Mi'kmaq communities to be partners. Uh, you, you have been really actively involved with a lot of community con consultation. <clears throat> Recently, just had, uh, I believe, two open houses uh, in the, in the community. Tell us about the reaction to your plans from the local community. Um, it, it's been tremendously supportive um, in Port Hawkesbury, in particular. I think we had uh, at the open house about 150 people that uh, came through and. And two person, I think, were supportive of the uh, project. Um, again, it's, I, I think, it's indicative of the Strait of Canso region um, that uh, they're very uh, open for business. They want to see jobs created in the area. Um, there were lots of questions on um, on how many wind turbines on turbine locations. Um, lots of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, questions on. Our commitment to conserving water as part of the, our production processes and the potential for recycling water, um, but um, really, in the twenty years that I've been the, in the energy space, I, I don't think I've ever seen more alignment with stakeholders 
local government, provincial government, and federal government in supporting the development of uh, projects such as ours. And I'm sure that um, that uh, Everwind and others are experiencing the same um, sort of support in the in the region. Paul, just a couple of questions left. This has been a very enlightening conversation. Wanted to ask you. We talked earlier about Everwind Fuels. You talked about some of the concerns or challenges around having enough labor. It seems that Everwind is on a similar development path here. Um, what, if any, impact will there be of having two projects, large, you know, similar projects under development at or around the same time uh, in the Strait of Cancel? Um, I think uh, timing is going to be very important, and and I think uh, Everwind's goal, and and again, I, I don't want to speak for Everwind, but I think their goal is to be in operation in 2025. Um, our goal is to be in operation in 2028, so there will there would be a lag um, between those projects. But assuming that um, even the, let's let's assume that uh, they would have an equivalent workforce, uh, say of um, 700 um, uh, construction workers at peak and let's say that there was some drift in their schedule and they they were to build at the exact same time as bearhead um that uh i i would sorry the the only two times i've heard this phone ring in the last month and of course they're they're at this moment <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. We can cut that out. Yeah, I can start again. The um, sorry, our requirement for barehead for construction jobs will peak at seven hundred jobs. Um, if if we we were to assume that. Uh, Everwind required 700 jobs as well. Um, the Cape Breton, and Cape Breton Building and Construction Trades Council all this points back to the to the PM2 project at Port Hawkesbury Paper, um, where I think they had 1,800 construction workers on site for that uh, project. They didn't require a construction camp at all. Um, all of the construction workers were drawn from Cape Breton and mainland Nova Scotia. Um, a lot of them uh, traveled to and from um, from the uh, project. So I think <clears throat> they point to, to the success of that project as an indicator of, of how things will unfold for Bearhead and I, I expect for, for Everwind. Oh, just a <clears throat> one question that we <clears throat> wanted to ask you. Uh, uh, we referred to it before as the competition for green energy. You know, <clears throat> if you're talking about building hundreds of turbines, um, these are labor-intensive projects. Again, that's uh, <clears throat> one of the challenges. And if you have two competing projects looking to build wind farms, you know, uh, do you see a problem uh, trying to secure uh, these sources of green energy? My only concern, honestly, and, and I, I think this is more of a personal perspective, is the number number of cranes that are going to be required um, for for the uh, for the uh, these projects. Um, I, I think that labor we should be okay on, um, given the feedback from the mainland uh, building trades and Cape Breton building trades. Um, but um, some of those supply chain issues, uh, you know, like um, the actual uh, wind turbines themselves and and cranes to uh, to put them up. Um, I think that's a challenge that we're going to have to uh, sort through over the next uh, couple of years. But again, also presents a great opportunity for um, for companies that are either in the the, the construction slash crane space um, or may have um, some intent to get into that business. Um, I think there's a, a huge opportunity there. David? Oh, I think we lost Dave's audio. Yeah. yeah Sorry David. about that. Sorry about that, guys. Um, 
Just a final question here, Paul. What do you think are the one or two biggest challenges that your project will have to overcome to achieve success? I think the the next um, challenges that uh, we'll have to um, work through are, are the it's the permitting for the other associated elements of the project. Um, I'm not sure if it was popular with my team, but when we received our approved final approvals from uh, the province for our environmental assessment, I, I sent a, team, a note to the team and said, "Congratulations, we're now in the starting blocks." Um, so. We will have to permit uh, our transmission systems. We'll have to permit the wind farms. We'll have to permit the um, the, the water um, transmission. Um, so really, the, those are the, the ones that are in the immediate uh, windshield as far as um, milestones that we have to, to resolve. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on the Insights Podcast to provide an overview of this important energy project. We wish you well. And we'll continue to follow this project closely with great interest. So thanks again. Well, thank you, David and Don. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about our project. And, and we really appreciate your interest. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.